0: Hello, people of Earth, music lovers, jazz aficionados, socialites, lowlifes, artists, teachers, the criminally insane, hello to everybody. My name is Bobby Spellman, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of my brand new show, Jazztopia. This thing has been in the planning stages for a little while now, and my objective here is to talk to some of the great minds in jazz and improvised music to get their perspectives and philosophies on the art of improvisation and composition, and some of their stories from the long, winding, and uncharted path to musical righteousness. As I record this intro, we find ourselves on planet Earth in an unprecedented pandemic lockdown, thanks to the COVID-19 virus. So I hope everybody out there is staying safe, staying healthy, and using your newfound indoor free time to listen to some great new music, uh, maybe read some good books, practice a little bit, improve your craft, whatever that may happen to be, be creative, and uh, stay connected to your fellow man. I thought now would be a pretty good time to put out one of these interviews, take your mind off what's going on in the world, and have a little fun hanging and talking music with my first guest. My very first guest of all time is the New York-based saxophonist, composer, arranger, and dynamic band leader Ed Palermo. Ed is most well known for the Ed Palermo Big Band, a sensational New York institution that specializes in playing the music of Frank Zappa, alongside the music of Todd Rundgren, Captain Beefheart, King Crimson, some classic big band charts, and Ed's own original compositions. An Ed Palermo big band show, if you've never seen one, is like nothing you've ever heard. The band is stacked with amazing players performing some wild mashups and rearrangements of old standards and prog rock classics alongside new compositions, and everything is tied together with a kind of madcap theatrical performance that is unpredictable and new every time. Uh, I've had the pleasure of playing with the Ed Palermo Big Band on a number of occasions, and Each show is even a surprise to the musicians involved. You never know what's going to happen, and it's always an exciting and entertaining and musically fulfilling endeavor. Definitely go check it out. He plays every month at the Iridium in New York City and at the Falcon in Marlboro, New York. Every show is different. Uh, Usually there's a theme involved, a lot of amazing music, and you get the most for your entertainment dollar guaranteed. The Ed Palermo Big Band has released a number of albums over the years, including a, uh, an album of covers of Frank Zappa's music, and Ed's latest album, A Lousy Day in Harlem, is uh, comprised mostly of Ed's own original compositions, and it's a fantastic record, so be sure to check it out. Uh, I was happy to talk to Ed in February, before we all got locked down, at his place in New Jersey, and we got to talk about Ed's path from saxophonist to composer and bandleader, his thoughts on practicing new musical ideas, Ed's rosy relationship with the Zappa estate, and whether humor belongs in music. We had a great time, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, here is Ed Palermo. You might have one of the longest-standing, continuously-run big bands in New York. Probably. When did you start the band?
1: Um, Okay, started the band about... After I was in Manhattan for two years, um, I came here as a uh, in 1977. In the beginning of uh, 1977, I mainly came here as, as a tenor player. And, um, and I had composed, but I hadn't really started arranging yet. Uh, but I wanted to be, like my heroes were Dave Liebman, uh, Steve Grossman, and Mike Brecker. Hmm. Uh, and... Um, then one night i went to the vanguard to hear woody shaw and woody shaw had a four horn band yeah. and i thought huh i think i could do that cuz i was always interested in arranging just not never enough to actually do anything about it so i thought i think i could do that and i thought well i got some pretty cool songs i wrote um and then i uh hooked up with an arranger friend of mine named dave lalama okay no i was playing in his band at the time so I was learning a lot from him, asking him a lot of questions, and uh, and there was another uh, 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 as a trumpet player who was an arranger who wrote really well, named Tim. Tim, we met. I don't Wait. know if you ever met Tim. We met, but um, anyway. So, uh, so I would just had all these questions, and I went out and bought a Don Sebesky book on how to arrange, but it was way over my head. So I I put a band together, doing my own material for the most part, and just just. just uh, started from scratch and that's that's uh that was the beginning of my arranging and eventually someone a friend of mine was playing i uh, got the gig with buddy rich and he says ed buddy rich is always looking for material why don't you put a big band together and write something for big band maybe i can get it on uh on this band so uh long story short i put a band together finally got some charts to buddy rich and he didn't like any of them so, sure. <laughs> that's, a so, so that's the beginning of my band
0: yeah what was the first band that you put together when you were? Uh, the first a band up? was a nine-piece band. Okay, what was the uh, instrumentation?
1: And the, the, the instrumentation was well: piano, guitar, bass, drums, and uh, five horns. And that was uh, let me see: tenor sax, barry sax, alto sax. Um, I think I was I may have switched to alto at that point. Was I playing tenor? I forget. No, that's right. I was playing tenor sax. That doesn't matter. Uh, trumpet, trombone. Three saxes, yeah. trumpet, trombone.
0: Yeah, that's a good place to start because with five horns, yeah. you've got a lot to work with. But yeah, totally. the difference between five horns or six horns and a seventeen-piece band is a pretty substantial leap.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it really is. Real. Uh, I don't remember exactly how I, uh, when I started r- arranging for, for the big band. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the uh, the obstacles were, but uh, it it all became just trial and error. That's you know I would record all the rehearsals on a um, Walkman. Do you know what that is? Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I uh, and I would just take it home. I was living by myself at the time and I, uh, I was really living hand to mouth. I was playing, just started playing with Tito Puente. Okay. And for $25 a night. Um, but believe it or not, we worked seven nights a week. So, we were, I was able to actually pay the rent. But I didn't have a, an actual table. So, I had a, what they call a card table. You know what a card table is? They're like no. fold-out tables. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I know okay. What you're about. Oh, uh, in
0: terms of an actual, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, uh, I did afford myself an acoustic piano. So all I did was arrange all the time. I'd rehearse once a week, and then take the tape, cassette tape home, and just pour over it, figure out. Okay, well, I have to change that. I have to change that. Total trial and error. Um, now, whether that's the best way to learn or not, uh, maybe you might be. Uh, reasonable to ask Ed, why don't you just get a teacher? You know, but <laughs> I, uh, I taught myself how to play the saxophone. I figured I'll teach myself how to arrange. So. Sure. Did you do? Did you go to school for music? I did. I went to a place called Dupont University, um, and uh, it was a classical school. Okay. So I didn't t- take any jazz. I took. I never took a jazz lesson from anybody. Interesting. Um, so I completely taught myself the way. The way I and this will probably. Might will be able to segue into the actual reason we're doing this interview about improvisation. Sure. Um, One of the few correct things I did in my life was I decided to learn how to play jazz by transcribing. Yeah. Um, uh, One of the things that we'll probably get into later on um, is that uh, the idea of starting with music theory is ass backwards. Yeah. First, you learn the language of jazz, and the way you learn the language of jazz is by listening um and and transcribing as far as I'm concerned sure you know yeah. um I remember a long time ago uh when Wynton Marcellus was starting uh just starting out. And going out on his own, you know, right after he was with Blakey, and he was doing these interviews. Now he's a, t- a tremendous musician, um, and I think he's probably done a lot for jazz. But he just said something that I thought, "Oh my God, this is so wrong." He, g- he goes, "Don't transcribe." His thing was, "Don't transcribe." Interesting. I thought, "What? How <laughs> else are you going to learn the language if you don't?" Right, but anyway, of but, the, but the point being that. Uh, uh, I transcribed, and through tra- then transcribing and then just playing the transcriptions, uh, it was then I, real- I, I, I realized, oh, okay, I learned a theory that way. Sure. In the same way w- when a baby or a toddler starts learning how to talk, That's ex- yeah. the first thing, you know, you, you don't teach them, like, you know, lean, you don't get a little kid linguistic book out. Exactly right. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, they do it by copying, and that's right. how I learned how to play jazz. And like I said, it's one of the few things I, I look back at my life and go, wow, I did that right. Yeah. And now I, now I teach theory, and um, but I'm always mindful that the, for the students that it actually matters who really want to become jazz musicians. I always make sure that I don't teach them anything about the modes. I tell them the modes exist Sure, but don't you know? Don't start noodling around the Lydian scale, you know, um, before you uh, hear where it's supposed to be. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And it gives it a
0: context, and you know, once you start dealing with modes or whatever, okay, yeah. this is what it's supposed to sound like. And on top of that, I mean, there's no possible way to learn swing from a book. You know, you see no. sometimes you see on sheet music for people who aren't jazz musicians, it'll be like, you know, two. Two eights equals yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But unless you're listening to the bassy band or you're listening to Art Blakey swing, there's no way you can get out, you know no. get the same feel out of it. And the no. feel counts as for as much as the notes or for anything else totally. like that. Totally. I, I use the same analogy all the time when I talk to my students who are trying to learn how to play. And it's like you, there's no way you know in the beginning you just have to try stuff out you just, as an improviser. You just yeah. have to try to experiment with it. And I always think of the same thing. It's just like if we took a baby and the baby starts going, yeah. you go, no wait, no way, wait, no. none of that. You know, we got to get the grammar straight before we start making any sounds yeah, here. Right. You know what I mean? Like to me, it's the same principle of like you you know you have to try something out. I think that seems to me to be the right approach, and it's the approach that everybody's taken through time. I mean, I think so. there were no books when Dizzy Gillespie was trying to learn how to play. Exactly you know what I mean? Right. That is all transcription. It's all learning. You know, it's a in in that regard, it's almost a folk art. We think about it as being like kind of highfalutin stuff now, but it's it's a music that even despite being as uh, let's say intellectual yeah. as it is comes from its roots in, you know, being party music or being. No, no uh, I to- I, t- I totally agree. I t- I totally agree. So after thinking, okay, I'll write this stuff and I'll I'll work out the material in the big band yeah. as uh, the potential that it might be played elsewhere. Then there had to be an. Uh, w- was that your incentive to then continue to write? Is to say, let me work on this process, or was it?
1: Well, actually, it's funny because. Um, uh even though the thought uh the prospect of getting a buddy rich to do uh my music that just even fell by the way- wayside because I then at that point I became obsessed with just arranging for the big band sure you know and then um and then we did with the nine piece band I probably did a couple gigs but I, once I put the big band together I never looked back never did the nine piece band again interesting um and so then it was from there that, we, you know, we did a uh, handful of gigs just around town, you know, door gigs. And then we, we, uh, then we hit it big by playing a club called 7th Avenue South, which was owned in part by the Brecker Brothers. Okay. So I got to know them, and we landed an every Monday night thing that, that lasted for three years. Oh, wow. When was, <coughs> when was this? That was 1979. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, seventy nine. Um, this is every Monday night, every Monday night, every Monday night, every, every now and then they'd bounce us this, If Jocko wanted to come in with his big band or, or anything, sure, yeah, yeah they yeah. would bounce us. And then eventually, what happened was, um, uh, Gil Evans was coming out of retirement, and then uh, they booted us for Gil, <laughs> which is which is fine. Yeah, you know that's what? All right,
0: if you got to get booted yeah, exactly by anybody, exactly right. Okay.
1: That's exactly right. You know what? It's like, yep. It's yours. Just take it. <laughs> I didn't earn this anyway. So, I was learning. I learned to write because I at the time the three years we 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 played seven and a half in the south. Um, I was uh, rehearsing the band once a week and then doing the gigs. So I was writing constantly. Now sure. I think I was. I had at that point I had left Tito Puente and um, was doing club dates on weekends. Okay. So that afforded and so now I had all weeknights, all weekdays and weeknights. Just to arrange. Do sure. The trial and error method. And so I was writing like crazy. Obsessively writing. Uh, and and I was so lucky. Because I had a, a venue to play it in. Sure. You know. Yeah. Um, but it, now. Uh, the doubt. I don't know if it's a downside or not. But uh, I assume. It, with a high profile venue. Like Seventh Avenue South was. Um, that. I just expected we were going to get a lot more out of it than we actually did. Mm -hmm. We never, we never, um, you know, I was expecting maybe a record company saying, yeah, we want to sign you. No, I ended up doing a record, actually vinyl back in the day, um, that I had to ask my father to to loan me some money to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, even though it was a high, high profile venue, the band never really rose above just playing there. Sure. It really, it, it just didn't, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but it has to be a good, I mean, that's an amazing way to just
0: get used to, and try different things out and get used no, to writing. It's, I mean, it it to, to is, have it that deadline. Yeah, the yeah. Gra-
1: it was the incredible experience. It was just incredible experience, especially for someone like me who, who pr- refused to actually get a teacher. Sure. Um, you know, I just wanted to teach myself, like I like I taught myself how to play jazz, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, Um, that's how I wanted to learn.
0: Sure. Did you buy scores and things like that? Look stuff up and just try to figure it out. Yeah,
1: I um, when I first moved to New York, one of the things I did while um, my first year I moved to New York, York, I didn't work at all. All I did was made jam sessions, Uh Um, and so. During the day If I wasn't jamming with someone I went, was going to the Lincoln Center Library mm-hmm. right. And I was checking out Classical scores Because sure. I was um, real into classical music And I just wanted to learn About composition and orchestrating mm-hmm. uh, But um, But I also had uh, I went out Because I was broke I was broke, broke, broke uh, pathetic because I hadn't even started working with Tito Puente yet, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I was just living on whatever I made, uh, when I was in Chicago, you know, and which was a much I only came here a couple thousand dollars, but
0: sure. And uh, that's where
1: you went to school, D- DuPont University, yeah. I was in ch- Chicago. Chicago, yeah, 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 gotcha, okay. So, anyway, so, um, so I, would, I was studying like crazy and listening, you know, taking records out to and then just like following the scores along, but I bought myself, I was able to buy. Um, Big Dipper, choice. okay. Sure, yeah. And so, um, now I had just gotten the gig with Tito, so what I I would just I got I would bring the score and during the breaks so I would just be you know just uh uh looking at the score and figure okay he he's doubling this note here he's doubling this I mean I was going way too into depth and I I just realized it was just you know look at every section as a thing in itself. It's that simple. So anyway, you, you learn all these when you finally start actually arranging, you know?
0: Sure. And that's the advantage to being able to do it all the time, to being able to try different things out and do it by trial and error. As you yeah. Instead of saying to yourself, well, let me kill myself over the sort of minutia of yeah, how right. somebody might do this or not. But if you're in that mindset, too, that's what you want, is to be super meticulous so that you learn yeah. the stuff so that, you know, you have that leeway. Yeah. Because it doesn't hurt to be able to run through and, you know, yeah. whatever, check out the way that different people are writing. Mm-hmm. So— so now your band is a little different in instrumentation in that you have instead of four trumpets you've yeah. got two trumpets, mm-hmm. instead of four trombones you've got three trombones. Yeah, and then instead of uh, whatever else you've got rock guitar and two keyboards. And yeah. I mean then it goes and then it gets a little wild. But what was the what was the thought process behind doing the okay. different horn section?
1: Uh, uh, initially, uh, we had four trumpets. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we always had three trombones, and the reason why we had three trombones because Buddy Rich only had three trombones. Ah, okay. The guy who played with them, at least he did when he, my friend, worked with Buddy Rich. And mm-hmm. so that's why we only had three trombones. Sure. And I never added a fourth. Okay, just, just stuck with the three trombones. Um, the four trumpets, that was, that that's that's a little dicey what, what happened there. Um, uh, I had four trumpets since the beginning for many years. And then... Uh, My trumpet section, my four-piece trumpet section, I just didn't think they played well together. And I decided... And then one of the people, uh, one of the players, wasn't hardly making any rehearsals. At this point, we were playing the Zappa stuff at the bottom line. The bottom line is the nightclub in in Greenwich Village Mm -hmm. um, that we played there for nine years. We played uh, the Zappa stuff every two months for nine years. Mm. So I had four trumpets there, but I... um, but, uh, like uh, the trumpet players were calling in subs all the time, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to you know, because the, we always have a space problem on stage. You know, I'm going to you know, uh, do I really need four trumpets? Now, because one of the part of the pr- uh, thought process was, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're, you're going to disagree with this aspect. We'll see. I don't like the sound of trumpet solies. I just okay. don't. They're like bumblebees or something yeah, swarming around. I me. don't disagree with you. I, I I I just don't like it. You know, I love saxolies. I love trombones when they're playing. You know, I, I I love it. But four part harmony in trumpets is something I don't. I've never particularly liked. Sure. So, but the only reason I was had misgivings about only using two trumpets as opposed to four because I'm a I love this guy Fela Kuti. Oh yeah. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now Fela's music <laughs> changed my life. Sure. And I said, uh, and of course this band was always miserably out of tune, but still the greatest music. And th- their out of tuneness was almost fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for, for that sure. that music. So uh-huh. so so I was get, really getting into Phala. Because so I think to myself, God, man, the only thing I miss with the four trumpets to this day is the unisons. That's the sure. only thing I miss. Okay. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, uh, and if the whole band is playing like a chord, it's kind of, it'd be nice to have maybe a couple, you know, the trumpets three and four, you know, to fill out, you know, maybe fill out a little bit, but you don't really need it. So I figured, good, good. Maybe we have more space on the stage. And, um, you know, I just, I'm I'm happy that that's what happened. Now, the reason I said it was dicey before is because the, it, uh, I had to fire Uh, I I had a four-piece trumpet section, and I fired everyone except Ronnie. Okay. (laughs) And um, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I'm going to come off like a total douchebag to anyone who watches this. I think that's fine. Okay? Um, (laughs) Because it's one of the things I'm very – I don't want to say ashamed of, that I'm embarrassed by, but the type of person I am is, like, I don't try to hide from it. I own it. Sure. That I fucked up, okay? And that is, uh, I fired two of the three by way of their voicemail. Horrible thing to do. I just wanted it was like like, ripping off a Band-Aid. I wanted to just get it over and Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrible thing to do. And the other, the one, and then there's a person who I did talk to on the phone I don't, because I'm thinking, what do you? When you fire somebody, you're supposed to take them out to dinner, and um, right, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to figure out how to navigate that it, kind of it situation. It really is. But at least the person I fired over talking over the phone, I don't feel guilty about that. But the other two, I really do feel guilty to this to this day. Sure, yeah, I, you that's know, true. it's just like, you know, they had been with me for, for years, and that's what this way I treat them. So I'm not proud of that, but you know. Uh, but that's the reason that we have four trumpets. And now, uh, the <coughs> we did our when we did our first gig uh, at the Bottom Line doing the Zappa stuff. Uh, that was in 1994, and I only had I only had my piano player Bob Quaranta, mm-hmm. and uh, Ted Kushin was uh, a, a guy who used to jam with all the time, and I uh, so. My brother was in the audience that night. He goes, man, the band needs something else. Ne- needs some kind of percussive thing, you know, like t- just for, um, you know, the double. I forget how he put it, but I thought to myself, you know, you're right. So Ted joined the band then. Sure. So he only missed like that first gig at the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we have two uh, keyboard players, uh, one acoustic and one uh, sampler. Sure. And
0: did he always do key- Yeah. electric keyboard? Yeah. yeah that- and for the Zappa stuff, you need it. I mean, it works, especially with all the marimba sounds and exactly any right. of the other color to it. It's yeah. a little bit easier to do that than to have yeah. a whole uh, yeah. mallet section or something like no, that. So, you know, but,
1: whatever. Uh, but, but so, on the other hand, some people might say, "Well, you, well, you need guitar player." People used to say at first we didn't have a guitar player for years. No guitar player, and so first people, some people say, "Oh, it needs guitar. It needs guitar." Well, only if I'm trying to sound exactly like Zappa, right? You know, the only reason I got guitar uh, like now is because Bruce happens to play guitar. Sure. You know, and also I added to the color of the arrangements, which is pretty cool. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's the reason for the instrumentation. Sure. Was Bruce the first guitar player? Because I know you had a singer no. before. We had uh, the first guitarist was started out just as a singer. His name was Carl Restivo, and um, I did have a couple guests who played with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Gary Lucas played, um, he, and he used to play with Cat and Heart. Uh, so he was a guest of ours, Sure. Um, and uh, you know we've had a couple guitar player guests. But as far as being in the band, Carl Restivo, he was a young guy who um, I had met, and uh, I mean young. Now he's probably probably around forty, but he was like twenty when I met him. Mm-hmm. You know, so so he was he was a really good singer and he played played. Really good guitar. And then when he moved out to California, right around then, I had just met Bruce McDaniel. And then I um, was happy to see that uh, Bruce was really... Loved my band, but he also happened to be one of the best musicians I've ever met. He's just like... Sure. Man, I rely on him for a lot. Yeah. You know, so... You know, uh-huh. So that's, that's basically the story of the band. Yeah, pretty good.
0: Uh, this might be a good time... Give me an idea of some of the people who've come through there, because you've had a ton of people come through that band, and it's always, a, it seems to me, it's always a super high quality, I mean, it's a serious yeah. operation.
1: Uh, well, you know, it, it, uh, yeah. Um, one of the people that was uh, that was in the band for a while was Tom Harrell. Okay. and Which is really interesting, um, just because he's such a uh, unique person. Sure, yeah. And he... Uh, one time we used to rehearse on top of a uh, deli on like 51st Street and Seventh Avenue. Okay, a friend of mine had this loft, and so uh we would go on top of this deli, and Tom w- was um, uh he's got uh I don't think call it bipolar, you uh, it's, it's, it it's schizophrenia. It's, it's, right? I believe yeah. mm-hmm. you know. So here's voices. Sure, and so you know everyone, and probably everyone watching this video here, probably knows about Tom's story at least to that extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but Tom would be, uh, you know, when it came time, you know, people get there early just to hang, but then came time to do the music, I'd have to go into the bathroom because Tom would be like in the in the shower stall, just trembling, just trembling. He was so afraid just to to go out and uh, you know. Join the others, sure. but once the music started, then all of a sudden, all that went, went away. He was just—I yeah. mean, he didn't become like this incredibly gregarious person, but he—but um, but he was cool. He'd re- read great; his solos were mind blowing. Uh, but the thing about interesting about Tom Harrow, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, the the thing that I uh, was fascinated by is like after rehearsal when we would talk about improvisation and how to deal with certain changes yeah um uh he just then he talked um almost normal he still had that uh, that that peculiar way that he speaks sure but he, but he was he was in really just totally engaged yeah once you were talked about music yeah you know, um, I can even show you if I can get on the piano. Can we do that? Sure. Okay, I'm gonna show you what we're, what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And I should keep put this over here. Yeah, sure. All right. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is gonna be. I'll move around. We're okay. Making, we're making it up as we go. On my new album, um, uh, "A Lousy Day in Harlem," we do a song called uh Likely Morgan." Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the vamp at the end is B-flat minor, C minor, A-flat minor, the B-flat minor, okay? Now, and of course, got a walking bass line, and it's fast. Nah. And so, anyway, so Tom Harrell, I, 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 uh, he got the solo... On it, and then he would solo on that vamp, and so we were talking about how to deal with that because I was figuring, trying to figure out myself on the gigs where I was going to solo on that, right? Mm-hmm. So of course we start with B flat minor nine, or all nine minor nine chords, right? Yeah. Okay. I realized that if you know, generally what you do is B flat Dorian on that, mm-hmm. and then of course you would think, well, then C Dorian. Well, no, that's that's. I guess you could do that, but it always sounded funny to me. Yeah. It's always sounded funny. I so, said, "No, I got to stick with the B flat Dorian," and it would never occur to me had I just took a completely academic approach.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, uh, mm-hmm. and if but if I took the approach of what sounds good and what doesn't sound good, I realized, no, man, especially at the tempo we're doing. You know, boom, 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 I can't play that fast.
0: Right, uh, right, right, right.
1: It's tempo. I, I realized, no, that C minor. I got to ignore that. Right now, we go to A flat minor. Which does sound good with A-flat Dorian. Mm-hmm. And but but when you go back to B flat minor, it does go back B flat Dorian as far as what sounds good. Sure. In other words, when it goes back to B flat Dorian, you don't take the same approaches as you did before when you went up. The A-flat Dorian, when I went up back to B flat minor, it's not like I kept playing A-flat Dorian, because that would sound funny. Right, yeah. That yeah, would yeah, sound yeah. weird. So anyway, so so Tom and I would discuss this. And he was uh, just fascinated with, uh, with questions like that. And um, and oh, here's a story. I haven't thought about this since. I, I've um, I, I, I was, I'm hoping that anyone who watches this uh, uh, gets something out of it. So you, that you learn from my cautionary tale. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, and something like this happened twice to me. I, I was given an opportunity, more than twice. I was given an opportunity and I, I uh, chickened out. And the opportunity was uh, because Tom Harrow was playing with Phil Woods at the time. Mm-hmm. And Tom Harrow, when he was playing with us, doing the rehearsals with us, he says, hey man, write a song for Phil. And I chickened out. Because, <laughs> and I never did. I never did because I, chick- I just chickened out. Really? Yep. Edgar Winter once said to me, we should write together. And I never did because I chickened out. Um, when I first came to New York, I came here I totally came here like as a tenor player. I had the opportunity to audition for Horace Silver's band. The Horace Silver's band, that, that was because I used to go when I was in college. I used to, one of my main influences was Mike Brecker. Uh-huh. And I used to go see, every time they came to town, Mike Brecker would be playing with Horace, you know. Uh, I would always go see him. I bought all of Hars albums and you know, and then I finally was given the opportunity, I chicken out. So don't be like me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but the th- was the thinking that it was da- it was too daunting a task yeah. in some regard. Yeah. Wow, Everything was trip. just
1: too daunting. It was uh um yeah, but it's surprising
0: for some. I mean, it would seem to me that the daunting task is to sit around and write constant <laughs> big band charts and try to put it together for a regular gig like that. Uh, you know, know
1: what? Um, uh, when you're writing, no one's judging you, because the what they do when you perform. Yeah, but when you're de- dealing with the big time, okay. First up, I came here as a tenor player, and uh, so that that's why I was intimidated to go. You know, to uh, you know. Audition for Horace, but eventually I had become so t- sick and tired of trying to sound like Mike Brecker when I realized that I was never going to ever be that good and I would have to devote all my life to being uh, doing nothing but that. Right. Because I, I, you know, and I would, my focus was mainly getting into writing at that time anyway. Sure. I realized, you know what, as much as I love Mike Brecker and Liebman and Grossman, you know, the, the one who always gave me the most happiness was Cannonball. Sure. So I decided, well, I'm gonna be a writer. I, I I don't want to completely give up playing the saxophone. I figured I'm gonna go back to playing alto, because that's what I did when I was in college. Uh-huh. Uh so I started on alto. And and uh before getting into the tenor guys that, that I got into, I was super into cannibal, like like all of the time. And this is actually gonna be a good segue into into the conversation of um improvisation. Sure. Um one of the things um I did. When I decided to go uh, back to the alto saxophone, I uh, went, and, uh, this is still in the days of uh, of cassettes, mm-hmm. okay? So I decided, probably in the early 80s, yeah, definitely the early 80s, I was going to go to my oldest brother's uh, place, and he had the biggest record collection of anyone I've ever known. So he had his, uh, the... His turntable hooked up to a cassette, so you could record albums. Yeah. So, here's the second thing I did in my life, which was turned out to be the best thing I ever did, besides the transcribing in the beginning. Yeah. I um, uh, I got all these Cannibal albums that he had, and he had a ton of them. And I went had you know the tape. I would press record. I put the needle only on his solos hmm right? Yeah. So now, and I, he, he, the melodies and his solos. Yeah. I totally skip over it, Nat, or, and, you know. Sure, sure. You know, because what I wanted to do was have a, on this cassette just one Cannonball solo after another. One after another. if you do that, and then, of course, I'm in my car, going to club dates or whatever, and all day long, all I'm doing is listening to these cassette tapes of nothing but Cannonball. sure. Now, why is that a good thing? To this day, there are certain things that I play um, that are that are so strongly influenced by Cannonball. Uh, it's never been, since I'm mainly a writer, it's never been one of these things where i, th- I got to find myself as a player. You know? Okay, uh, Interesting. I, I Really, it, uh, I, I've never known an alto player that swung as hard as Cannonball And that includes Yeah, be hard
0: to find Yeah, it'd be hard to find, yeah,
1: right? be hard to find. Uh, <laughs> uh, And that includes Bird And I, you know I, I will let anyone completely uh, Just tell me I'm full of it Go right ahead I, I maintain a Cannonball His swing was harder than Bird's Sorry Yeah. But, you know <laughs> That's what I think But, you know What am I, the arbiter of swing? So, you, you could tell me I'm full of shit I completely I, don't, I won't you know, argue with you But anyway, but um, So uh, I figured what I want to do as a saxophone player is try to come close to swinging that. I probably will never achieve it, but I get closer to it every time I practice. Sure, I get closer to it, and yeah. I and when I do that, then I'm happy with what what I play. Just in terms of this, sw- just swing, just trying just to swing, sw- just trying to swing, yeah, just, just trying to swing because it's a lot more. Um, well, you really swing. And I know uh, a, a lot of players who are really good players who don't have that that kind of bounce. I always call it, I call it a bounce for some reason. Sure. I yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. why. But there, there's something like uh, uh, my friend, oh, oh Chuck Wilson, he was an alto player, big influence on me. He's my first lead alto player in my big band. Just passed away recently. But uh, he's a Cannonball fanatic. Uh, he got to actually hang with Cannonball because um, he was in North Texas State, and Cannonball brought Nat and his quintet down there to do like a... Masterclass in concert so he chuck had the job of driving cannibal around oh, and so anyway and he said cannibal was like the nicest human being ever but anyway be that as it may so um i uh, so i would listen to these cassette tapes over and over again and um and just fascinated just, just absolutely fascinated with what, what I'm hearing. Um, you got to keep in mind this is me listening, getting into Cannonball in the in the second phase. The first phase is when I first started going, going to college. Um, cannonball, Jack McLean, and Phil Woods—they were the guys I mainly listened to. Sure, you know, yeah. and but it was Cannonball always. I was always the most intrigued with. And then I got, then when I went to, to um, maybe in my second or third year of college, when I went to see Elvin play at the jazz showcase mm-hmm. and he brought Steve Grossman Lehman had already left Elvin to play with miles so um, so uh, he came to town Elvin came to town with Grossman and Frank Foster okay so anyway so n- now there's this new way of playing jazz that I had never heard before now what with Grossman uh-huh. now uh, then my brother Nick told me, my oldest brother, the one with the big record collection, mm-hmm. he goes, oh, man, you got to hear live at the Van I mean, um, Lighthouse. Yeah. the Lighthouse. Yeah, 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 That's at Lehman and Grossman. And I got it. And that changed my life at that time. I just pretty much gave up playing alto, and I plus played tenor. Started transcribing ah, that stuff. Sure. And, uh, and of course, my Brecker my was coming in, into town, and Mike was pl- playing completely out of that style. Sure. You know, Mike had his own thing because Mike had a little more rock and roll in him than, um, and more R and B than Liebman or Grossman. Yeah, but still that that uh, that that mid '60s Cold Train thing before mm-hmm. trains got into the avant garde, right? Um, doing. It, the, you know those uh, albums like out of this world and stuff like that um uh, which I didn't know at the time because I didn't know those out al- those train albums but I didn't realize that that's where Lehman and Grossman was that's where they were getting their stuff from was train Sure. that period of yeah, train yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so um so then I started listening to the train of that period so I was real into that and then then eventually when I got to New York and I decided that I wasn't happy playing tenor anymore uh and I went back to playing alto now Um, And that's when I started making those cassette tapes of Cannonball. Um, So, uh, yeah. I think one of the things that
0: uh, that I always come back to is the fact that in jazz music and in improvised music, you can always come, every time you go back to those old recordings that you knew before, you're coming at it with a new perspective. That's exactly right. And it's kind of amazing that, I mean, I go back and take out records that I listen to, in endlessly in high school or something like that, and just hear it in a completely new way now totally. and to be able to come at it from that perspective. Like, okay, well, now I'm coming from a, a already listen, you know, whatever a post Liebman world. Let me go back to Cannonball and check that yeah. stuff out, and it's an oh, endless process. Oh, it's kind of amazing. So when you went, to, when you came to New York, what did you think of yourself as being? I'm going to be a saxophone player. I'm going to play.
1: Like, what did, what did you think your career your your path was going to be? I can tell you right off the bat. Um, I alluded to it before. My path was going to be, I was going to be in the same realm of those people that play with, you know, Elvin was going to call me, uh, Har Silver was going to call me. I was going to completely do the route of Lehman and Grossman uh-huh. and Brecker. Sure. That's what I was going to do. I was going to be one of those guys. Now, um, I, as soon as I got here, you know, the competition wasn't all that great in Chicago. Okay. So I could actually go around thinking I was really good. Yeah. And I come to New York and now I've got people who who also aren't famous, like those guys, but they're better than me. And I'm realizing, uh, because keep in mind, I'm 21 at this point. Uh-huh. I first moved here, I was 21 years old. Um, I realized, uh, and I'm being brutally honest about myself, I realized some really just bad things that I came here um with no Time, I had no sense of rhythm. Interesting. I was able to. I was able to graduate college and become a pretty. Uh, I won't say important, important, but I was a guy that was respected in Chicago. Uh huh. Now, um, but I realized just now. I would like tape myself at like at these jam sessions. I'm thinking something's wrong. Something's wrong, and I, re- I realized uh, I'm nowhere near the beat and i realized and i looked back the reason why i can tell you this and and, and trying to find anyone who's going to be this brutally honest about <laughs> themselves uh because as you know the um the worst thing that you could say to about a, a jazz musician is that he's a, a uh, no time no swinging motherfucker sure but that was me and um and i had people that were actually trying to tell me that Ralph Alon was one of them um and because he came to town the same time I did, and we used to go to jam sessions. And there was another guy named Jerry Vamola. Jerry Vamola was a, a, a Lehman, uh, Grossman fanatic. R- uh, Ralph was totally into Sonny Rollins and Hank Mobley. Mm-hmm. Now, Ralph uh, was better than both of us. But then there was an also another guy that uh, didn't hang with us, but he was also just came to New York. And his name's Richard Perry. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, Richard Perry, um, I hope I didn't get in trouble for saying this. Richard Perry was better than all of us. And still is. Sure, but Ralph Alam is fantastic. He is absolutely, you know, I, I love how Ralph plays. Yeah, but but uh, so it's not a put down to him. Right, but Richard Perry was that was something special, and still is. Sure, I, I defy you to find a tenor sound that's more beautiful than Richard Perry. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, uh, but anyway, be that as it, as it may, um, but all these guys, one thing they all had in common is was that they were swinging. Yeah. In their time, and I just never put that. I put. I realized I put all of my practice time into chops, mm-hmm. and, sure. and I could play over exchanges. Yeah, but what's it mean if it, if, if you're not swinging? Right, you know. And, yeah. and so, you um, know, of course. Uh, so then I started, you know, but it took me years to find a beat. It really did. Some, you know, I I had a good ear from the get-go. But uh, you know, some people are born without legs and arms or something. I was born—I was born without a beat. I was born without a natural instinct for rhythm.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So now, how do you overcome that? Because that is not an easy. You can learn harmony and you can learn rhythm. That's exactly right. And you can learn tone, but but or rather, you can learn like you know harmonic com- concepts yeah. or whatever. But the time thing is tricky well
1: it's only tricky if if you if that's a deficit of yours well what i mean is learning it how do learn like, it how do you okay. build that up well okay uh i um just try to concentrate on on it more I, you know it's uh i would say that having conquered it i would say that um you know to uh I'm really just still doing what I always, do, which is just feel it. I'm just feeling it better. Mm-hmm. but if you but you can catch to this day you could catch me uh, um, if um, for one thing, if I conduct when I conduct my band, if someone if one, if there's no rhythm section going on, and if I'm just conducting the brass or the saxophone without a drummer keeping the time, if someone slows down a bit, I'll follow them. So it's still there. I mean, in that sense, it's still there. You can also catch me if I'm doing, if we're jamming and and all of a sudden the rhythm section just stops playing and it's stop time, Um, I I have made a fool of myself so many times back in the day. (laughs) If you do it now, I would do a better job, but I probably still would slow down or speed up, you know? So it's not, you know, because my excuse always is, hey, I'm a writer. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 I'm a writer. Okay. But
1: the fact of the matter is I do want I do want to conquer this thing. Right. But not enough to do what I really have to do, which is spend eight hours a day with a metronome. And uh I mean whether you believe in the metronome or not. Um I think it definitely has its purpose. And sure, I, yeah, I've yeah, never yeah. used one hardly ever in my life, you know, because you know, the truth hurts. Uh but
0: <laughs> that's, yeah, that's metronome's job is to keep you honest and so yeah, that's respect.
1: exactly right. He's exactly right. But um, but, but when my older da- daughter went to college for to be a bass player, I, I always told her oh, use a, use a metronome. Use a metronome. Don't be like me. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, so um, so uh, it's good that I say this and, and be this self-deprecating about myself because, um, like. He, uh when I first started teaching, there was uh one of my students came in. He was in one of my ensembles, he played guitar, and he's one of these guys when he would tap his foot he'd be all over the place and he had really bad time. So he got there early to a rehearsal once. I said, Listen, I want to talk to you. I said, Listen, I said, You had the same problem I have. I uh I said you don't have natural rhythm. So I'm telling you, you, you gotta focus on that, you know. And I think I probably told him that you, you use a metronome, but mainly just you know, just you know, if you're going to be playing along with records, just really just focus on the beat and tap your foot. Your foot is your friend. And he would go, "Oh, oh, but tap your foot hurts." <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, but so I can use it now. Uh, like in other words, if I get a student who doesn't who was like me, born without a beat, um, uh, then I have at the very least I can recognize it and say, "Okay, this is what you have to focus on." Yeah. Now if someone's uh and I've yet to do this, but if someone um I could imagine me saying to someone, Okay, I'm gonna have you study with this person because this person really, really is gonna focus on the beat. I don't know if that would be Ralph LaLama <coughs> Ralph's thing has always been time, you know I mean yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and he's right, sure uh, and um uh, you know, or I'd find someone who I just know this you know who could really know how to teach that um But but there's a component to not knowing in the first place
0: that makes you a better teacher. Like in my – let me put it like this. In my experience, the the thing that I am best at teaching is – to teach people how to physically play the trumpet. And it's because it did not come naturally to me at all. Oh, okay. It still is a constant struggle.
1: Oh, wow. That's interesting. And
0: it's one of those things that because I have to think about it so much, other things have come naturally to me in a way that, that just playing the trumpet physically has not. But yeah. that means that I now know, and I've made every mistake you can make. I mean, going through the thing when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, you know, my teachers would tell me stuff that I tell my students now. I'd be like, yeah, I'm sure, guy. You know, I'll work on that. Or whatever, you know. But then I make the mistakes over and over again, and you learn it. And that's how you know how to teach is if you know if you've overcome those challenges. Yeah, I've had teachers who were amazing, amazing trumpet players who just had a knack for it. Were built for it. Huge guys who can, you know, <laughs> yeah. who can play, and it. And it's not always easy for them to convey the thing because it's like, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah, what's wrong
1: with you? You don't know how to solve this incredibly complex equation right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah
0: so so at a certain point you you said to yourself I'm going to be a composer or an arranger a writer maybe as much or more than being a saxophone player the tricky thing I think that everybody runs into in jazz world is how do you balance out what it is that you're doing like how do you how are you going to uh parse out your time let's say okay I'm going to spend a certain amount of time on improvisation I'm going to spend this much time on writing this much time on I don't know, whatever, trying to play shows or yeah. teaching or any number of other things. And it seems to me you always have to sacrifice something. Like if I wanted to be the best bebop yeah. trumpet player in New York, the first step is just do that yeah. for a little while. But to me, I've always struggled with that because it's not easy to do one thing and yeah. to stick to it. Did you ever have to think about that? How did you think about that? Or how do you even maybe how do you think about that now? Like the balance in time?
1: Well, it's um, it's that's n- never an issue uh, for the most part. And I'll tell you why, because um, you know, one thing I don't watch, I hardly watch any TV except for my wife and I watch Jeopardy! We DVR it, yeah. And, and then I'll watch, um, you know, a couple news things at, at night, yeah. And then, and then I go to bed, but um, but all of my time is taken uh, ranging music for my students mm-hmm. because I have a lot of ensembles, sure. I teach, um, uh, sorry about my inner burps. Hey, okay. no, Edit no that part out. that's uh.
0: <laughs> This is authentic, man. We're doing it. Yeah, for exactly.
1: Real. Um, so uh, see, I should not have been drinking the seltzer. It's probably what it is. I'm gonna, I'll make I'll make a point not to do yeah. that. it's but, dangerous. But, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I'm hardly ever in a situation where uh, I've got all this free time. What do I do with it? You know, it's, it's never because like you're the, always yeah, coming yeah, up with new stuff. Yeah, since yeah. I've been doing the the, the Zappa thing, uh, uh, and that's been now for close to thirty years. Sure, close to thirty years more than 25 let's put it that way um every chance i get i arrange for the band for those shows yeah you for know? the
0: for the iridium shows. <laughs> yeah for the and iridium the, shows. and the uh, now the iridium back the then was,
1: b- b- back then it was the bottom line gotcha not the yeah. iridium and now we, we also played a falcon right every chance i get to arrange is from big band for that now yeah. every now and then i get called uh christian mcbride calls me to uh Arrange something for him, sure. Because he's a great arranger, but sometimes he's so successful and so busy that he can't do everything that he wants to do. So then he calls me,
0: sure, yeah. <coughs> and he's got a big band that works yeah. somewhat yeah. regularly. Yeah. How'd you get involved with that?
1: Uh, okay, I was um, arranging music for his wife. Okay. And that's how I met him. Yeah. So they weren't married at the time; they were just dating, and so. Um, And so he, you know, he was there and he'd hear me just talking about stuff with his wife, Melissa Walker. And then he he says, he said uh, then we start talking about arranging. And then he hired me to do this, uh, this thing at the Apollo. Uh, And then he, uh, then the second time he hired me was for James Brown. And there's a picture of me and James Brown. Oh, wow. I'll bring that down, uh, (laughs) you know, in a second. But... um.
0: Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, I know Christian. Wait, did you? Who, were you? What was the context? You oh, it was
1: three months before he died. Uh, it was a Hollywood the Bowl. It was a Hollywood Bowl, and we uh, Christian uh, was on the board of the Hollywood Bowl, the artistic board. Uh-huh. So he, you know, he'd come up with these concepts, and so, um, so he talk James Brown into doing it the music of an album it was uh, James Brown it's his, 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 like his only jazz big band record he did a jazz big band album and just to show you how peculiar James Brown is the name of his jazz album was out in 69 i think it was um was called soul on top okay so even a jazz album right, yeah, yeah. He, he completely misrepresents it by calling soul on top <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but it was Louie Bel- louis-, louis bellison was on drums and uh-huh. you know the uh, the arranger orc- the, uh, was oliver nelson sure so um right. they couldn't find the scores to it so um that had eight songs um and Christian uh, transcribed, arranged one, and I did seven. Mm-hmm. And so you know, he hired me to to, um, to do that, and I flew out there on my own dime just just for the hang, right. and so I could get that picture. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, um, so you're sitting there in the audience while they're playing your yeah, the rearrangement. Yeah, I, I was actually, yeah, the... I
1: was, uh, Christian wanted me to stay in the back at the very last minute just in case someone needed something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I thought that was really sweet because he's the, next to Whitney Marsalis. He's the most successful jazz musician alive now. Sure. And I just thought it was really kind of sweet that you know that he needed a, me just to, just to be there, just to make him feel a little, you know, um, sure, which just yeah, made him feel more yeah, yeah, comfortable. Yeah. You know, no doubt. So yeah, we yeah, need for sure. me for. Him. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you never um, know
0: on a James Brown show, man. That could go any number. You yeah, might oh, need yeah. backup at any Uncrushed time. Unquestionably.
1: But <laughs> once the show started, then I I went out. Out front, to, sure, to, yeah. To watch. That's a trip. But anyway, so so. But going back to uh, okay, so hardly anyone ever hires me to do to do that, which is fine. Believe me, it's fine. I I you know I'd rather spend the time arranging for my big band doing these Iridium shows, and um, because that's the most fun I have. Arra- sure. Arranging yeah. wise, that is the most fun because I I know what the audience reaction is going to be. Yeah, and right. especially if I'm writing something funny, um, they're going you know then I you know, that brings more joy to my life than anything I do.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you, I mean, you've you got to be, now, you're bringing in new arrangements or new things for every show. I mean, every yeah. show I've done with you has yes. been, if if not new tunes, and there's always something new, yeah. new transitions or new yeah, right. putting tunes inside of tunes. Yeah. you. I mean, you've got to be manic about it. you got to be writing all the time. It's time-consuming to do well, this. We,
1: it is, and it's the most, like I said, it's the most, uh, it's that's the most fun the writing the writing of it is the most fun it's yeah. almost as much fun uh, to do to actually do it
0: yeah to play but it. it's the
1: right and I noticed this a long time ago when I was playing 7 Down in the South when I was rehearsing the band once a week and when I was writing all week long and doing the, the once every Monday night gig the one thing I realized that as much as rewarding it is to hear the stuff uh, you know live uh, with a band of really good players the really fun part is just the doing it, yeah. Because that's where the creativity is, right? Yeah. For a writer, mm-hmm.
0: I, I find the exact same thing. If yeah. I can sit down and my happiest place, I find is sitting at the piano and trying to work out. To me, it's puzzles and things like that. Yeah. You know, trying to figure out, well, how am I going to do this, or what are the possibilities? Oh, yeah. totally, totally, totally.
1: So, uh, do you write too? Yeah. You, oh man, I got man, I got to hear it.
0: I'll, I'll send you something.
1: Yeah, but I hope I'm your, on on your list of gig. I've been wa- I've been
0: waiting for a little while cuz I got a I've got a I've got a nonet based on the instrumentation from the birth of the cool and we're doing an album an album coming out in May. So oh man. I'll say it to you anyway.
1: Oh <laughs> man, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. But anyway, so uh so um where were we?
0: So you're just writing for the band and putting these shows uh, Yeah. the idea process Oh, yeah. So to so
1: yeah, so okay, how do I find the time? That's what you asked. Okay. Yeah. So uh, now, I had to go teach. is how I make a living, right? Right. But uh, now, what I've been doing lately is uh, getting there uh, where I teach really early. Now, I don't have a degree to teach in the school system, which is fine. Yeah. You know, because I think I would go out of my mind uh, if I had to teach kids she who just banned. T- I'm, where most of the kids don't want to be I'm there. with you 100%. You know, yeah, you I couldn't mean, have said it. Yeah. Most. I mean, so I, I, I do have some students. Since it is a, a – it's not part of the school system, so – the parents are paying money for their kids to go. Right. Um, uh, Most of the kids want to be there.
0: Exactly. That's the big difference. That's a Teaching little Susie who doesn't care about it at all to play the clarinet That half hour
1: feels like an eternity. Yeah. You know? For sure. Uh, But anyways, but I get there early and uh, what I used to do is get there and then take a nap. Uh, But now, I'm obsessed with practicing Mm -hmm. the saxophone. Sure. Just obsessed with it. And... um, and, so that's what I do. Like yesterday, I felt like I died going to heaven because I I got there in time to practice my sax for two hours. Awesome. Two hours. I mean, that was like I never had so much. And it's really hard practice. I mean, yeah. It, but but hard practicing is so rewarding. Yeah. And now this is where I I if you don't mind, I would like to get into what we were discussing before yeah. we started. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is improvisation? Yeah, okay. Now this, right. that, this sounds like some really bull uh, prelude to some <laughs> bullshit here <laughs> we need to get we need yeah. to get down to the brass accent. okay this is what this this is what i think improvisation is for me if this is after years and years and years of of being a jazz player mm-hmm. right yeah all right okay so i um you know we learn our licks we you know let's say we we learn licks through the you know i'd say like i I the cannonball and he's if he plays a lick, I want to be. I want that to be part of my vocabulary. Now, in other words, if for anyone watching this who's not a musician, uh, uh, there are these lines that we call licks, and um, and some of them are so cool that you've heard the expression: the songs have. Stood the test of time Well I maintain That there are licks That have stood the test of time That they're so cool That pe- that Cannonball I mean Charlie Parker Took from Lester Young Cannonball took from um, You know Charlie Parker And then on and on and on Yeah You know and you, and you probably get Some real jazz music colleges That they can really Go much more in depth About that So Now is the point When you impro- improvise To only play those licks I say no Okay One of the things is going to be. I'm going to try to make this tangent real short. One of the things I'm sure you hear people talking about is, uh, as players, is to turn off your mind when you play. Yeah. And just play, and just let come out. Don't even think. Oh, I'm going to play this lick here. I'm going to do this here, and just let your mind go where it goes. Now, I am a big believer in that, and I used to think that I can't do that because I'm not good enough i'm not at that level yet and now i realize no you can actually start that mindset very early on um now we're gonna go back to the learning licks sure my thing is this that like when i jam with someone i'd like to just make things up you Mm -hmm. know i mean okay i know the terrain i know what i know what Chord tones, and you know, if I know the chords of the song, you know, I know, I know the terrain. So what scale is whatever. Yeah. So I can start making stuff up. Now, back in my head somewhere, there, there's say that Cannibal lick that I may have played for the last thirty years. I don't want to make a conscious uh, effort in my head to say, okay, I'm going to fit that in now. Right. No, that's just got to come on its own. Volition. That's going to all be part of the, what I guess you could call the meditative process of you just playing and all of a sudden, hey, that reminds me. And then, then it fits in. Sure. And otherwise, you know, let's say you stop a, 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 your thinking process, you stop, throw the lick in, and then go on with just, you know, I mean, yeah. That, that doesn't work for me because I realize the thing that makes me happy as a soloist is the not thinking. Sure. It's the thing where, because um, you, you have to be pretty comfortable with the song. You know, a lot of the Zappa songs we do are only one chord anyway. Uh, but um, and I try to stay away from those type of things because they they can that can be like just really boring, just one chord solo things. But um, uh, Zappa loved playing over that what he called landscape, where it's just one sure yeah, yeah Lydian yeah, yeah, yeah. thing or whatever. Right. But still, um, and I'm sure you, I know that you know what I'm talking about that. Um, you've got this vocabulary and other licks that you have but i don't i don't want the i just want that to be something that that will uh through free association pops yeah. up you know and and never sure. make
0: it the thing itself right but i think if you think in those terms you can be organic about it and you can play you can find your own voice in the, your influence yeah but, oh, but yeah, that, totally. what you hear all the time is people who Are regurgitating licks that they've learned. Yes. And in my mind, it's the same as if you were to, if you were to go through old speeches, if you were to go through like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King or something like that, and then just take pieces out and then sort of piece them together into a thing, you'd be like, What is this? Sounds like a robot made this up or something like that. But if you could absorb the music in the same way that you would language or something, if you read certain writers or if you know just your family or friends or whatever are gonna influence the way that you speak. Then it makes it a natural thing that you're playing. Exactly. And not, Which you is know. funny
1: because you, because uh, I equate uh, taking solos, improvising solos, in, in the same way as you, like language. But I, uh, I one of the things, like what I, what I was speaking of, I equate it to more like where you're hanging out with friends. Yeah. And you, you know, and you're comfortable, and you're joking around, and all of a sudden, you know. Uh, Someone says something, and then organically, your response might be something that you've—another joke that you've said before. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the way that works. It's not like you've been sitting there going, okay, Bobby, <laughs> I've been waiting all day to tell you this this line. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. well you know, Well, for one thing, and a lot of times that's out of context, so your lick might be out of context. Yeah. You know, and so—but um, uh, if— uh, Having, I think it's great to have a, a big vocabulary sure. of licks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a, those are the, some of those licks are the reasons why we became musicians in the first place. Yeah, you know I mean, we, they excited us so much. You know. Sure. Uh, now, what you were saying, uh, I uh, uh, okay. One of the reasons I'm really happy as being a soloist is because I have no uh, desire and, and realistic. I'll never be the technician that a lot of these musicians are these days, you know? Sure. Uh, like when I hear, uh, uh, like, uh, and that's not an insult, like no. the guy in my band, Ben Kono, plays tenor saxophone, sure. or, or Dan Glode. Um, these guys, I'll never be that technically proficient, and both those guys are amazing players in every way, soulful and everything. Sure. But I have no, you know, realistic desire to, to uh, it, for me to even come close to that, I'd have to give up writing. I have to give up everything and that's 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 never going to happen so right I, I have to and be that ha-
0: speaks to the, the the way that you're you know you spend your time or whatever yeah exactly yeah you exactly itself
1: and I'm, uh but uh I'm enjoying playing now that more than I've ever have because I love the quest of trying to swing mm-hmm. you know sure. trying to get that cannonball bounce yeah um and I love uh I love vocabulary. But okay, let me show you. Can I show you what I've been doing lately? Yeah. All right, okay. Saxophone? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was that's what I was gonna, yeah. All right, okay. Ask.
1: Now um Cannibal has a solo uh on the Cannibal Coltrane album. Yeah. Cannibal in Chicago is that originally called. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the strap is gonna work. Um it, the song is called The Sleeper and uh, and it's it's one of the greatest blue solos ever so in it he plays the sixth and i love the interval of his sixth i just love how it sounds it's it's like a yodel yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but somewhere in he he, he does something like let's like, <laughs> Slowing it down, so, you know. Yeah, 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 of course. But anyway, uh, or uh, yeah, that's not the the, the lick. Sure, but it's But, it but a that's the idea. Is so. So I'm thinking, man, I want to I, I want to make that regular part of my vocabulary. Yeah, and that's more of a concept than it is a lick. Mm-hmm. But sure. like, but but I have to start out um, uh, with writing. These lines, I don't know if you want to call them next, but like, here's like. Okay, now, uh, I, you know, that might not sound like much, but if in the context of a solo, as um, uh, so I've been practicing a lot, so that in the context of a solo, hopefully when I'm doing my not thinking thing, that might naturally organically appear. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure. That's the point of me doing it. And then right. the uh, uh, oh, by the way, for some reason, I only practice bebop. I only practice tunes, I, Songs, tunes with changes. Okay. 251. I don't know why. There's hardly any of them in my Zappa book. Sure. Uh, yeah. so, so what I practice has next to nothing to do with the big band. For some reason, I just love playing. I, when, as a soloist, I'd, love, I'd rather play over great Un American songbook tunes. But well, the lick I, I came up with, which still based on the sex, which is a... like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm not playing it particularly well, but uh... so a lot of those in that was like. See, there's your. Yeah, sex. yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And sure. then I then I just follow the pattern. You know, and when I went. I, I changed it a little bit just to give some kind of a variety. Uh, but, uh, but that's an example of uh, what I – the reason why I uh, practice what I practice. Because I want these things to be – and I practice everything in every key. Yeah. That's, that's another correct. thing that, sure. that I started doing when I first started playing jazz. I had this Patterns for Jazz book by Jerry Coker. Uh, Florida dude okay okay yeah my brother turned around that that book and I and I used to do everything religiously and then once uh I started getting more into tenor for some reason I was transcribing all these like Liebman and Grossman and Brecker licks that they were so hard that I decided I wasn't going to do everything in any key anymore when I first came and I came to New York not only did I not have a beat but I also refused to practice these things in in 12 keys, which I think like Ralph Alamo was doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this other guy, Jerry Vamola. But, but when I hit the age around 50, which I'm 65 now, so 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I finally said, you know what? I'm a scam as a player. I've got to practice everything for now on every key. Yeah. And I've done it since. Yeah. And I find for the first time in my life where you, when I did it, when I first started, that was like one of the drudgery things of practicing. Right. Now it's fun. Yeah. Now it's fun. And some of it's really hard to do something in F sharp that you play effortlessly in in C. Yeah. But I figured, man, I'm a con artist. uh, If I don't, if I can't play this in every key. Right. So I, I, I make sure I do that. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, now, I'm going to tell you how I. Uh, we were talking about practicing
0: Okay? Yeah, here, I'll, I'll have you get a little closer to the thing Oh, I'm sorry,
1: little you're, little not getting, you're not getting No, nah, probably not Okay, I'm sorry okay. Oh. oh, No worries, no worries Okay, um, here we go I'm going to put this up a little bit Okay um, Now, we were talking about Like, like I'm 65 years old And, I, and you'd think by now I, I would have a solid way of practicing And uh, I feel pretty good now Just over the past week because <laughs> here is the one thing I noticed that when I get my horn out and I start playing, um, uh, and this has been the, 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 the this has been the, the the fact with me since I started playing, yeah, that I play the first within the first minute, I will play something just playing just off the top of my head, I will play something I've never played before. Now it might be something that subconsciously I heard somewhere before, but it, I will always play. Almost every time, I will play something I've never played before, just mm-hmm. by just by go- doing, just improvising. Sure. Right. Yeah. Even so, only improvising over one chord or, or over uh, two five one or some song. Sure. Right. So I figured, well, hmm. So w- what that has developed now, every time I uh, I get the horn out, first thing I do is in a slow medium uh, slow tempo is. Improvise over a tune. Hmm. A lot of times it's all the things you are. Yeah. It goes through, you know, different modulations. It's sure. It's, it's good for you, you know, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, um, so, and then I have my music paper there, okay? Mm-hmm. If I come up with something that I've never played before, then I'll write it down. Sure. Right? Yep. Uh, and uh, then um, what I'll do is pick another song, Star Eyes, mm-hmm. right? Play that lick on, over those changes. All right, Not, uh, but I still want to make sure that I'm only improvising for the first part of my a practice session. And That might be only five minutes, right? Yeah. Then I go through the thing of the more pedantic thing of all right. You like that lick, Ed? Fine. Now you have to run through all the keys. Sure. Then I run through all the keys. Yeah. Okay. Now I feel like I've I've eaten my vegetables. Fine. Yeah. But then I go back to Im- improvisation and 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 fitting. Uh, of different tunes. There'll never be another you. Just a Stella, you know. Sure. Uh, lately Woody and You's uh, I do that. What uh, what is this thing called love, you know? Mhm. They have to manage stuff for you, Woody and You uh, Woody and You is really challenging. But uh um, so all with the purpose of uh, that this whatever lick that I've come up with will someday be such a natural thing that I do that it'll organically pop up on its own volition and that I don't do it on purpose. Sure, yeah.
0: Is, and that's the idea of starting with improvisation is to get yourself sort of to try yes. to create new things that yeah. you can then use. But it almost, you're almost mining your own vocabulary from your subconscious or something from the beginning. It's yeah. almost like you're, that's right. exactly. where are my licks? Let, let me figure this out from my own intuition and then incorporate that into my playing more s- solidly.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, so you find the same thing? Are, 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 is, uh, I mean, is there anything that uh, the way I approach things or, uh, or at least conceptually that, that you d- either disagree with or, or do you have your, uh, or that you're thinking, well, I see what it says, but I, that's not how I go about it? You're, uh, you're surprisingly
0: close, I think, to the way that I think about this. Yeah. But it, uh, my goal is always to be able to do anything that happens in the moment. Yeah. my primary objective improvising is to be able to respond to the current situation and to be open to spontaneous yes. invention yeah and I've shied away in some regard I mean I've done a ton of you know transcriptions and figured all kinds of things out and listened to people and whatever uh, but the idea of taking certainly like something like a sixth and and okay let me go th- let me take that let me take one pattern that might use that interval or that kind yep. of an idea and go through all the different keys that way the next time that comes up in it or you're playing a tune you have the ability to be spontaneous it gives you the opportunity to say uh let me create in real time if i'm hearing something suddenly now you subconsciously will know how to do that because you've already dealt with it in a certain yes. way yeah uh yeah i totally i totally agree with that as long i think the end result for me wants to be and this is let me think about this. This has to do with just the people that I admire the most yeah. are the people who have figured out their own voice on the instrument, yeah. which in many regards is the point of why we do this. That's it's exactly like, right. Let's. How How is it that we're going to... What's our vocabulary? How is it that we get out what we're yeah. trying to do? What's our contribution to the whole thing? Yeah. And so in that instance, it's like, well, how do you go about finding what it is that is uniquely yours rather than just having... You know, the danger to me is always to just... Specifically, regurgitate something that you've heard before no, in a don't. way that is not your own. Yeah, it's not organic. But that's a tough thing because it's 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 sort of a fast track to learn all the licks. If you sit down and you say, "Okay, I learned all the Coltrane licks. I can just play them over whatever." Yeah, it's a fast way to do it. But then you you may you know later on in life you may be like. Am I just the guy who sounds like Coltrane now? Is yeah. what's my own yeah. thing, you yeah, know no, what I exactly mean? Right. But it's oh, not like, an easy balance because no, where's is. the balance between, you know, you can also do the thing. When I was at NEC, there was a there's a I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for this. Let me see. There's like there's like there's an idea NEC is a very open and uh, kind of experimental school. And that's the reason I went there in large part because they were teaching, you know, bebop alongside free jazz and all this other stuff. Oh. But there's also a mentality that that's like it, it would be easy in some instances to get so deep into uh, originality that you lose track of any kind of discipline. And then you end up in, I'm just going to, you know, you may lose some of the command of your instrument or yeah. command of what it is that you're trying to do or command command of the harmonic vocabulary or something like that. Uh, but that's a balance. That's where you are on the spectrum. Like yeah. somebody like uh, Albert Eiler may choose to jettison licks that people would find familiar for the benefit of trying to reach the very core of his soul as a musician that's a choice that he would make and on the other side of the spectrum you'd have i don't i don't come up with anybody at the top of my head but somebody who technically knows all the stuff but may not have you know yeah yeah exactly and that's i guess that's where you fall is how you practice to find that but what you're talking about is a really interesting approach to it in that you know you're gonna say what is it that's me in the first place and then let's try to get you know try to
1: reinforce that in my own plan. Yeah, exactly. Now, and and I think uh what the reason I said what, like um I'm constantly uh examining reexamining how I practice and you know because I know what my goal is, but a lot of times a lot of times I'm I'm not uh focused enough like in other words, if I'm having fun just doing the improv part, then I'll do that maybe longer maybe i i maybe i didn't eat my vegetables enough that day you know and i yeah. think my man come on i needed i needed to buckle down and get that song, get that concept in my head so i can so it'll come out just naturally so but anyways but that's just me being you know uh uh self deprecating again but uh, but there's also a uh, but, uh, but but hey, when I say self deprecating at least I'm being honest about it I'm not just saying it just to be self yeah, deprecating you know what
0: you you know your own limitations
1: yes. and your own strengths I it, mean that's it, a exactly sign right. of,
0: it'd be better than that. if you came in you know if you were like I'm better I'm good at everything it's, yeah. yeah, that's usually kind of dishonest.
1: Uh, one thing I, uh, I wouldn't mind talking about and this is all sure. ties in and yeah. and when we listen to other players what we like and what we um uh, don't like like in other words it's easy for me to say that uh, I don't want to. I don't need that technical proficiency that these like the, the Weisskoffs in the world have. You know, um, and Ben Kono and, and Dan Glode and, and Drew Winkles. I mean, these guys are just this great, and I love how all of them play. Sure. Um, I don't need that for me to be happy. I don't. I don't need it. Uh, a lot of times when I go, not those guys, but when I go hear jazz. I can't follow what people are doing because they're just playing way too many notes and not enough uh melody sure. in other words, let me put it this way simple melodies I guess f- playing fast are melodies i guess they're melodies too, but they're just right. fast yeah, and i find uh either they're playing too fast or they do this thing uh now this is complete, completely subjective mm-hmm. if they play outside of the changes uh in a song that doesn't, that I feel, uh, particularly if it's my song that I wrote, I wrote pretty changes Yeah, and you start fucking around and, and you start playing out with these out things that may be part of your concept, but I feel are destroying my baby that you just, you know, you just, you just drew a, 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 a mustache on my baby. <laughs> you know, you just drew a Hitler mustache on my baby. You know? sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Particularly my own songs, then I get, uh, then I get, then I actually get borderline angry. This is like don't practice on my, don't practice that stuff on my song. But even if you're doing a song, a a pretty song, and all of a sudden, uh, if I hear someone playing really outside of the changes, uh, and I I feel it's not working, sure. um, Then, like I said, it's subjective, but part of me thinks. I want to ask them, what are you getting out of improvisation? In other words, is a successful solo to you one that you were able to force feed the, your your out concept into this song at the expense of the song? Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, listen, man, I've heard pe- I've heard this this thing we're talking about playing out. I've heard music players I really love do that, and I think to myself, Ed, maybe you're, maybe you, maybe uh, maybe I'm it's something was wrong with me. I can't, you know.
0: Yeah, well everybody's gonna interpret the music in a different yeah, way. Or exactly.
1: appreciate certain things. But like let's
0: say you took like a Woody Shaw or something like that. Yeah. He could play a beautiful tune and play out on it and it has a it has like an exciting it uh, gives it a yeah. certain level to it.
1: I've never heard Woody offend me sure. that way.
0: Yeah. I, I, so maybe that has to do with just the approach to doing it. Yeah. Like there may be a, but it may also be it may speak to the point of like it could be contrived. Like th- that is to say you may find that somebody's playing out just to play out yeah. just for the achievement of maximum hipness yeah. to the expense of the you know at the expense of the music itself whereas you could use the same techniques and you could be doing something that really like maybe maybe another I'm trying to think of examples where you could say that's beautiful but also really wild you know like yeah. and maybe it is like late coltrane stuff when he's playing I guess it depends on the era, but you could see like, okay, this is a melody and it's a beautiful melody, but it's being played timbrely out or something like that. But it still works because it conveys the message. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's really about conveying the message. If you're playing a ballad and all of a sudden you're playing, you know, you have to have a reason for playing some kind of a wild thing. And maybe that's the, the, the experience of the time, but it would probably depend on the circumstance.
1: I, I, sometimes I feel we'll go back to the thing about playing the too many notes. Thing. Well, first off, well, that's even subjective too. Playing. I mean, sure, you know, but I can understand. I can you know, understand it. There yeah. used to be a thing that uh, the old timers, like in Chicago, would say. Um, uh, I guess in a way to get me to stop playing so many notes, they would say, "You know, if you can't sing it, then uh, then then you shouldn't play it." Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then you tra- then you just never listen to Coltrane at all. Are you gonna Are you gonna sing? Good, his solo on good bait, right? Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I'm saying? So, this is like, I guess, I suppose you could, but the thing is, uh, I don't I want to be one of those old, old, fogey guys that would say something like that because, like, Mike Brecker's taken solos that were blindingly fast and I love him to death. So, it's like it's not, it's, uh, um, but I just find a lot of times when players play so much, I, I just think to myself, what are you getting out of this? Are you getting? Are, is this an OCD thing for you that you have to fit this many notes in to this solo? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. But on the other hand, no, then the answer probably usually is no. Ed, you're the asshole here. You're the guy that just <laughs> you're the guy who just can't understand it. You know? Right? Yeah. Maybe, well, I, or I, maybe not to say asshole, but maybe Ed, you're you're uh, maybe my attention span isn't isn't great, or maybe I'm not loose enough as conceptually to be able to just sit there. And just take it all in that that's very that very well could be, but it all regardless of o c d or not it all really does it completely goes to what you enjoy hearing right. in a jazz soloist,
0: yeah, yes, and that's fair, and there are certain things that when I started listening to them, I probably found them. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if this is going to speak to this exactly, but when I was a kid, I got a a friend of mine's mother gave me a record, gave me Bitches Brew on vinyl. And I came and I, you know, I wiped the dust off my dad's record player and I put it on. I listened to it. And the first time I heard it, I was like, this is bananas. What (laughs) even is this music? You know? And then the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this is, there's some really cool stuff. Oh, you know, but, but I had to, I had to be able to hear that. It's the same thing when I first heard bebop, when I first heard Night in Tunisia when I was in ninth grade or something like that. Yeah. I was like, I don't even know if I can figure out what this melody is. And then the more you listen to it, the more your ears, you know, become accustomed to that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I do think that we may have, I think jazz music in general may have gotten down the road of technical proficiency disregarding what are you trying to do for the song itself. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's a, you know, you're serving the music. So if you have the opportunity to play some crazy thing, but the music doesn't yeah. want it, that's a little maybe metaphysical or something, but there's <laughs> yeah. an element no, no. to it that is like you're contributing to the conversation. It's the same thing if you had, I mean, let's maybe do an analogy here. If you had a conversation, if you were in a conversation with three or four other people, that move where you say, oh, I've been waiting to tell this joke yeah. this whole time. Yeah, right. Now's yeah. my chance. And you throw yeah. it in there, they'd be like, what the, that's not even relevant to what <laughs> What are you talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, but in any context, there may be a time where you're like, you know, insane baby mustache Hitler joke or something like that. It's exactly <laughs> what is appropriate given the circumstance. Yeah, you know what right? I mean? You never know. No, that's true. The outness may be appropriate, but it's just, it is about like, all right, well, what are we doing to contribute to the music itself, yeah. rather than what are we doing to make sure everybody knows how cool I am? Yeah, yeah. you know, while we're in the middle of this.
1: Yeah, it's I don't know. It's probably uh, this whole conversation is something that never will never have an actual answer, but that's fine. That's, that's, that's it. That's, yeah, yeah. that's what jazz is anyway. You, you know, you never mastered this. You, you know, and that's the beauty of it. Yes, in Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, so it, that is the, you know, it's uh, the, the, the adventure is the reward. Right. You know? Yeah.
0: That, that may be exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. It'd be sinful if I didn't cover before we get out of here. Uh, when did you start doing the Zappa music or when, when were you, oh, okay. when did you
1: become familiar with Zappa's music? Okay. Or? Uh, well, uh, zap, when I was in high school, uh, I was mainly a Beatles guy because okay. I, I was I'm I'm so old that I was in fourth grade when the Beatles came out. And um, and just a, a quick aside, I, I always like to say because it always makes me just makes me smile inside. Is that when I was in the fourth grade, uh, I was ten years old, and um, the two things that happened in 1964 that year that was the most exciting thing ever was the Beatles and a guy named Cassius Clay. Sure, who became Muhammad Ali? Both of you know he beat Sonny Liston, and the Beatles came out, and there are actually pictures of them together, the Beatles and and Cassius Clay. Yeah, yeah. back when he was Cassius Clay. So, um, uh, that was an astoundingly exciting time. But anyway, so I was a big Beatles guy, but then as the years went on, uh, this type of music that used to be called underground music came out. And it was all a lot of it was based on the Beatles, but they were like bands that were playing small clubs um but they were selling good amount of albums um and they were, it was called underground music and that was like you know uh Frank Zappa's Mother's Invention mm-hmm. um you had Jefferson Airplane, you had the Who and uh, you know a lot of them. Yeah. So um but one of the guys was Frank Zappa. So my brother Nick, again, he always brought the great music in the house. He uh, brought, brought in a, a Zap album, and I, I, think, hey, this is pretty funny. You know, you know. Uh, you know. But I also noticed, we, even with the funny, the funny stuff that he put in the albums, underneath the funny stuff was some really beautiful music. Um, it was like yeah. almost like Zappa was testing you to see if you could look go beyond whatever silly thing he put on top or yeah. ugly thing he put on top sure. and see this incredibly beautiful music underneath. Um, so, uh, but then I went to see him live and that changed the whole game. The, the, sure. Every time my band plays, there's some element that is uh, inspired by the first time I saw Zabba. Interesting. Yeah, so I was in ninth grade at that point. Oh so man, it has gotta be a trip. Oh, oh. <laughs> It was unbelievable. It was a great, great time. I mean some a lot of people say oh man, you know, like I I I guess any phase that you grew up in is is going to be you know you're going to see it as the best time in music. But right. people were in the 40s and 50s, you know, you know whatever, you know, um, uh, you know with big bands, you know, and with Louis Armstrong back in the 20s and 30s. But but anyway, but mine was the 60s. I was born in 54, but when you start really getting into music from like the age of five on, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you're so, you're like a sponge. You're hearing all this stuff. Well, uh, and that's basically what my, the whole, that's what my big band is about now. Is, uh, you know, uh, even though we're really eclectic, we do a lot of different, from different eras. Uh, I'd say the majority of it is that, t- that time period. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, mid-60s to early 70s. So anyway, um, so I was... Buying all Zappa's albums, and I just wanted to be him. I mean, that's he was like the, the greatest, and he's still my favorite. Yeah, um, still my favorite composer. So, um, uh, so, uh, then I, but when I got to college, even though I was still buying his albums and a couple other, um, uh, pop people that I was still running to, like Todd Rundgren and Edgar Winter, mm-hmm. um, Stevie Wonder, still buying that stuff, but I had really become a bebop Nazi. I would just like you know, only listen, only getting to Phil Wood's albums and, you know, whoever, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, when I saw uh, Elvin Jones, you know, and then, that, then that's when the big influence came from uh, Liebman and Grossman uh, and Mike Brecker, but, um, uh, but I was really at that point only focusing on playing the tenor saxophone, first sure. alto, then tenor, yeah. right? But I still buy Zappa's albums. And then when I started arranging, uh, when I got to New York, I was um, still listening. I I stopped buying Zappa's albums. uh, But I was um, starting to write my own music and blah, 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 blah. So what happened was I think I had heard that Zappa had gotten ill. um, And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to write some... uh, zappa songs from my big band up that point i didn't arrange any zappa songs believe it or not sure my first 100 songs the uh charts at least 100 charts and not one zappa song so i I wrote a couple zappa things then i found out he was really really sick and then he eventually died and that's when i said okay you know what uh well i was playing once a month at a club called the bitter end you played there yet Mm -hmm. okay so uh i was playing once a month there i go you know what I'm going to write a bunch of stuff, and one of these Mondays, we're just going to do all Zappa show. And what happened was, now, uh, prior to us doing that, it was hit or miss whether anyone would ever show up to my gigs or not, you know? Okay. Sometimes we have some people. Sometimes we the band outnumbered the audience, yeah. you know? Now,
0: this is the whole doing weekly gigs for since... The, the end, or whatever. I mean, you get yeah. some people, or uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, 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 when I was doing the weekly gig at uh, seven out of the south, this is even way past this. This well, now this is early 90s, this is like sure. 93. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and I was doing those weekly uh, the weekly gigs at seven out of the south in the early 80s, okay. So, anyway, so good at least 10 years, you know, had in that time, and in that time, I was you know, just playing these little gigs here and there with my band, nothing. Fabulous. No, so. so. no um, Career going nowhere. So <laughs> anyway, so um, I was getting ready to do one of my mo- these uh, monthly g- m- uh, gigs at the um, at the Bitter End, and this is right when the internet really started, as far as everyone using it. That's when it would become ubiquitous, where everyone had everyone was you know yeah, and there were bulletin boards at that, that time. I don't know if you were too young to online know bulletin online bulletin yeah, boards. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think they call it that anymore. No, now they're I, now they're just face message boards, message boards. Whatever like yeah, they exist. So I put like on. I had uh, what is it, my ISP was Prodigy. I don't even know that they even it. I don't know. Whatever. So anyway, the word gets out all, all over the country. Now the Zap had just died in December. Okay. And we so we have our our concert. Uh, uh, my first thing doing Zappa is set for June, so maybe a month before that, the word gets out the big band by this unknown guy named Ed Palermo, going to do doing the music of Frank Zappa. Zappa fans were so hungry that we when we got there, the place was packed, just packed. I'd never experienced that before, huh. ever. Even when we were at 7th Avenue South and they were just drawing, the club was just drawing because of the heavyweights that played there besides us, you right. know? Yeah. But we ne- I never experienced this before. So, uh, and the audience went crazy. I found that people drove down from Canada, drove up from wow. Florida. Really? Uh, because, and they had no idea who I was. All they knew was a New York band was going to play the music of Frank Zappa. And I thought, wow, this could go places. I hooked up with uh, a bigger club, the the bottom line. And then, long story short, we played there every uh, couple months. Um, And now I'm rehearsing every week. So during that time, um, at the time, to make a living, I was just playing my weekend club dates, but I was also arranging doing uh, like Sinatra transcriptions for these society bands. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but during that whole nine year stretch, I was writing Zappa, uh, nothing but Zappa. Okay. charts sure. oh boom 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 you know i wanted to make sure every show was different than the last yeah you know uh and it's for nine years so uh that's why my my i've got well over 300 zappa tunes wow in my computer sure you know Um so now so you that, that should answer you your know. question about th- 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 that that pre- answers the you know how i got into zappa and and yeah
0: yeah, so then you did an album of Zappa's music.
1: Yeah, in 1997.
0: And then you got in trouble with the... The Zappa estate. State. Yeah. What happened? What ha- you, can you tell me what happened? Yeah, there? sure.
1: I can tell you what happened. Uh, I mean, because Gail passed away. Gail was the widow. And uh, she, when Frank died, uh, in, instead of being heartened by uh, fans who wanted to play his music, because Frank did say at one point, I just want people to play my music. Right. Um, she saw everything as copyright infringement. Did she wanted to give she wanted to have the power to say, No, you can't do that concert. Right. You, you used to show me what songs you're doing because I have to make sure that this this falls under the category of songs that you're allowed to play. Yeah. Which was pretty That's
0: arbitrary. To her. me, yeah. No, no. But all that to me is insane. Yeah, it's insane. But she even did it to Dweezil. Yeah, she did oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's as wild as
1: it gets. It's, but isn't that the point, is you want the people to hear the music? You want to get the music to the people. That's why I do it. I mean, the thing is, I mean, uh, I mean, there's never any chart I work on where I'm not thinking of the audience. I maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Uh, I like having a receptive audience, sure. and I love people. My biggest compliment is when, when these Zappa diehards say, thank you for keeping the music alive. Yeah, that's what, exactly what you want. It's like... That's it. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's all the validation I need. Sure. That's it. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean that that is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. That just same hearing those words. Right. You know? Yeah. Um Yeah, but basically she always she was like writing me cease and desist letters and stuff. She never pulled the trigger, never actually did sue, but she would send the cease and desist letters. And yeah, uh, I mean, that went on for the whole time I was doing his music, but you can't, well, that's gotta be
0: daunting to sit there and try to do the stuff and have his widow telling you not to do it. I mean, that's discouraging
1: as hell to try to, (laughs) well, more than, you know, I mean, one point I had never been sued before. So, um, she started on her, uh, her threats right after the first time I played the bottom line. Uh huh. The bottom line, the first one played there was packed, super packed for early show and late show. Uh, again, those people who were there had heard how great the Bitter End thing was. And once again, it got on the internet, on bulletin boards, Yeah, and people from all over came. It was, you know, and it was through that experience, that first experience that the guy, the, the owner of the uh, bottom line said, Let's make a, th- a regular thing out of this. Uh, so, uh, but it was right before the next concert, which is going to happen like in, in December, um, where she found out about it. She had her lawyer call me and basically threaten me, saying, you, you, uh, anyway, it scared me so much that it, it triggered what became a panic disorder. Really? Of which I am on still medication to this day. Wow. Now, I don't think that, I don't blame them for that. I, what I have is a chemical imbalance. You realize how many people have this? <laughs> I mean, like, sure, sure. you know, and yeah. thank God, all I need is this little pink pill of Paxil, 20 milligrams, and I'm Cool. It set me straight. It just set... I've tried to get off it every now and then, but big mistake. It's just I get I get these panic... I, I don't get them when I'm on the medication, but without it, I have these panic attacks where sure. I can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm shaking too much. Uh-huh. You know? I can't sleep. I can't eat. But, it was, like, but it, it was. started with that. It started with that. Wow, that it's, is wild, Yeah, huh? it was really wild. And uh it was crazy because I was getting ready writing new stuff for, for the next Zappa show because I'm so excited, right? And then all of a sudden... I realized I I can't do it because all I can do is pace this this well new carpet now. But all I would do is pace back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was uh, in uh, conjunction with and no one ever talks about this when panic disorder becomes entwined with depression. Uh huh. You know, usually people talk if it's one or the other. Yeah. But mine was a combination of both. I'd just be you know when you have panic attack, your uh there's your adrenaline goes crazy, but in a bad way. Right. It's sure. not like, all right, rhythm section's popping, my yeah. solo's coming. <laughs> yeah. No, that's beautiful adrenaline. Right. This adrenaline is uh is works against you. Sure. It just exhausts you. And then you're and then you're lying here and you're completely but not good tired. Because you're lying here and you're dead, but your heart's still pounding a million miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like the way I explain a panic attack is it's like a uh, pit bull is chasing you. But there's no pit bull,
0: right? Okay, but
1: you have that fear, sure, yeah, and it's uh, anyway. But it's that that triggered that, that wow. triggered that. But so, yeah. I, like I said, it probably would have happened anyway. But that, but um, but that was the that was the
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. that's it's more than you can yeah.
1: Fortunately, it took two weeks for the pill to start the, you know, the, the the pills to start working. Sure, um, and and those two weeks were the worst worst weeks of my life. I didn't know how I was going to survive it. Oh wow, um, but. When it started working And then I went Oh man I can hold a pencil Because at that time I was still I think I was still writing the scores By hand So uh, Then I got back to work Yeah I still had two more weeks Before the next gig And so uh, Next Zappa gig um, I was still doing club dates Miserable as hell I still made myself Get up And, and, and do them um, uh, But Anyway yeah So that's that's what that's about. Sure.
0: Now, th- but she couldn't, I mean, you can play the music regardless. That's not an infringement in copyright. If you're selling it, it's a different thing, or if you're not paying them for it. But is there a way, I mean, they can't really sue you just for playing the music live.
1: Uh, you can sue anyone for anything. Whether uh, it's
0: going to hold up in court or Yeah, though. that's a different, uh, sure. Okay, fair point. Which is,
1: I think, one of the reasons why. Her thing was, like, uh, there's this great guitarist that that uh, and composer named Mike Keneally, and Mike, uh, his play was before, but he used to play with Zappa. He was, like, one of Zappa's favorite musicians. hmm just astounding musician, uh, uh, he put it the best. He goes, she just likes to be a looming presence interesting okay. so and so she she passed away ironically from lung cancer she didn't she had stopped smoking years before, but uh, a lot of people think it's because of Frank was uh, uh, who didn't die of lung cancer, he died of prostate cancer, right, but he was a chain smoker, yeah, and so you wonder whether it was his secondhand smoke sure that killed her yeah you know right, right, right. um, but no, ever since she died, I haven't heard anything the a uh, couple of the kids now do the estate now I don't they see us rightfully so as small bananas, you know yeah but yeah,
0: and but hopefully you know? people would be on the side of having the music played because the music takes on a life of its own, oh yeah it li- it lives beyond the people, like you can't stop that from, and you want people to hear it, I mean, that's the point totally. why you spend so much time writing the music, Why wouldn't you want yeah, people to hear it? exactly
1: yeah. right. Exactly yeah. right. I mean, I tell you, the way it's always worked for me since I've been doing this band is that I do the band for like three years. I get burnout. Don't do. I I I go a year, maybe two years without doing the band, and then I start the band up again. Burnout on just because of the lack of 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 interest, you know. So that's happened a few times. But ever since I started doing the Zappa, I haven't burnout once. Wow. And it's a zillion times more hours I'm putting into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've always put a lot of hours in. But the, the, the reason why is because I have an audience. That is the reason. Sure, yeah. I have an audience. I mean, right. the music itself, it's great. But the reason why I'm burnt out on it is because it, it, there's a reason now to be doing it.
0: Right, you know, sure, yeah, because people are going to show up.
1: People are going to show up, and that actually, I was going to ask
0: because it, it's so hard. To, the, the, the The time and effort involved in running a big band is often a thankless job, and it's a lot of work. Yeah, but that's the thing: is if you know that people are going to show up, it makes it's going to drive you to continue to do it. Totally. I mean, there's got to be more to it than that as well, but certainly, oh, yeah. having that as a foundation is like people want to you want people to hear the music, unquestioned. And every time I've been in the to the Iridium as an audience member or whatever, yeah. or or um. Or the uh, the Falcon. It's packed. It's packed every time.
1: We've we've uh, you know we, we always heard all of us always heard when we started this thing, you got to develop a following. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot harder than it seems. Oh yeah. And let's face it, man. If it wasn't for Zappa, I wouldn't have an audience. You know. Uh, fortunately, my audience has been, been enjoying the band so much that I can actually do a, a very little Zappa, and they're going to still be ha- they're sure. still going to go, and they're still going to be happy. Yeah. You know. So that's yeah. good.
0: Well, I'll tell you, the other thing is, is you got to have the most, uh, let's say, madcap entertaining show of any big band in New York, of New York, maybe, possibly the world. I mean, you're standing up there wearing a pig mask, playing the thing. I mean, there's you know whatever the last time i what were you doing you were uh, uh, snowflake and oh, yeah. uh, uh lucy i never know what to expect from I love lucy or whatever well you
1: know what um i'm glad you're enjoying it uh, uh i know the audience does it's um that has really grown over time and the falcon is the main reason for that because uh I, I learned early on the falcon well i can put on like a little show here you know sure i i don't even remember what uh inspired it but um I mean, one of the first concepts we did, we did a, a Wizard of Oz parody. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, for Z- zapping music being the main thing, but we we did that story or fucked up the story somehow. Sure. Uh, and then we did probably what Drew Vanderwinkle thinks is the best show we, we did. I think so, too. We did a cowboy show where we had a, a, a storyline that went through both sets. And because not only was it silly, it actually had a soul to it. Actually, The character I played was... Getting the electric chair, and and we had people in the audience go, no, don't do it, don't do it, and they were really emotionally involved. And I thought, yeah. oh, this is the best thing. But that was a that was a ton of work. Uh, sure. So I liked to, I just like in the same way, like I was mentioning, like Zappa's music, he liked to right like his sometimes arrangements would have ugly stuff on top, where underneath this astoundingly soulful, beautiful music. Um, I think he was testing his audience, you know, just saying, just seeing who could see beyond. That. Yeah. In a sense my shows are like like that. If you can hear this incredible m- music that's that's beneath the veneer of the silly stuff that I bring yeah. to it. Um, you know, uh because I mean, Zappa has this, had a big thing. Zappa, I think, was kind of defensive about the fact he did funny stuff too with his music, and right. he had this album called "Does Humor Belong to Music?" Right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my answer to that is, of course, it does. Sure. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Well. Yeah. 100%. Every every yeah. aspect of life, if you know, if if you can make it something that people want to see and can relate to and laugh at, and you know, why wouldn't you? put that into the show. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many times someone said something at a rehearsal where I, where I just said, oh, that goes in a show. That's, yeah. That's really, or, or someone said something and like, oh, well, that's the album cover of the next album. Right. Or, no, that's, a, that's our next Falcon theme. My, if I have any uh, talent at all is, is being able to uh, he, hear or see something that makes me think, I want to use that. Yeah. You know, and not ignoring it. Sure. Which yeah, I yeah. think, and believe me, I don't want anyone else uh, you know, the big band to be as silly as us. It makes us more unique. <laughs> sure. But I think if there's one thing that that musicians don't do is, is notice that there are external things that happen that they could very well use.
0: Sure. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that kind of, I, I wonder sometimes if in jazz in general we've uh, strayed, too far from entertaining people at all yeah i yeah. mean it's art music for sure and I, I think that's the foundation but dizzy gillespie was a genius and he's standing up there i mean he could go back and forth between playing the most beautiful genius stuff imaginable yeah, that's right and then also be able to, you know stand and be, there and be
1: the, the, astoundingly funny yeah uh, i used to see dizzy a lot when he come to, when i was in college and man, i remember him one one time it was in the summer and it was charlie parker week mm-hmm. and so uh he was talking to the audience you know just about uh, the history but in the funniest way not not uh pedantic or academic at all just yeah, the funniest yeah, yeah. way and he started talking about the great trumpet player innovative trumpet players you know yeah he's like freddie hubbard and he's mentioning you know uh roy aldridge uh clifford brown and someone yells up don cherry and dizzy goes mm. <laughs> and and then and then someone uh uh Dizzy goes, Well, I'm more talking about, it. and then someone yells up, this black dude yells up, you, You're talking about the innovators, not the imitators. And Dizzy goes, Inna. In other words, short for innovators. Yeah, yeah. But the way he said it, Inna, <laughs> you know, just to, to, to affirm that the guy was right, but in saying innovators, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. just so funny. Sure. It was so funny and so quick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's. Did you ever meet him? You're too young for that, right? No,
0: yeah. He he died in 1992. Yeah, maybe. I would have been five. Yeah, I yeah. Guess, but I, unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him.
1: I got to. Be, he used to come to uh, uh, to hear Tito. Oh, from yeah, from time to time. Uh, but uh, I got to meet him. I I met him twice, and then the um, the second time I met him, I told him, I reminded him the first time that we met, and he said he remembered. But I know he didn't, but he was just. A gentleman sure He's yeah yeah, a gentleman. yeah yeah uh uh but yeah but you're you're right, I mean you know in but not everyone is meant to be a a, a front person and I'm, I'm most jazz people uh i think uh aren't very good at you know you know, I don't expect them to be a clown, but at least be loose enough just to engage the audience a little bit, you know sure uh, yeah but
0: Everybody operates differently and they've got their own thing, but I do appreciate, and it sounds to me like there's no, the danger, let me put it like this. You could think about it as being as, okay, well, we don't want the silliness to take away from the music, but in my mind, seeing it, it enhances what it is that you're doing. It's just another component. And that's something that I learned a long time ago, is you think about music as being happy or sad or triumphant, but there's no reason it can't be funny or there's no reason it can't be quirky in one way or another or how you know encompass everything in the human condition. And part of that can be... You know, whatever. Yeah. All kinds of
1: wild, you know, the wild show element of the whole thing. Yeah. I remember once I seen Richie Byrek playing at 7 Avenue South, and um, and and he's fantastic. He's playing this incredibly serious music. It was just hard to get through. Sure. And then during the break, I see him flirting with, a, like, a waitress. I'm thinking, well, how come I didn't hear any of that in your music? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so let's let us hear so what do you think? Yeah. You got enough got to We got it, it. We did it. The edit it out? Did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll two yeah, we'll pieces together. The so, room floor.
0: No, yeah, right, of <laughs> course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, so as a last thing, you yeah. play every, every month at the Iridium. When yeah. people hear this, they know where to find you. Every month at the Iridium and every month at the Falcon in Marlboro. And the show's appreciably different every time out. Yeah, completely different and yeah. wild. Yeah. Like nothing and you've wild. ever seen. That's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Ed. You got Appreciate it, Bobby it. Spellman. All right, gang. That was fun, wasn't it? Told you it would be. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Ed Palermo for sitting down with me, let me pick his brain. Uh, come back next week. I'll be speaking to free jazz guitar icon Joe Morris. We had a lot of fun talking about the nature of free music and uh, his past and the art. And I know you'll enjoy it. So follow whatever if you want to support this endeavor. Mail cash. You can mail cash. If you want to figure out how to do it, send me a message. I'll let you know. All right? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe there's another way you can support it too. I guess like it or share it on Instagrams or Facebooks or whatever we got out there. All right? All right. Everybody stay safe. Stay in your houses. Get some sunlight if you can, but stay, you know, away from uh, those greasy piglets outdoors. And, uh, you know, get some work done. Try to read some books and listen to some good records and check out people's art. All right? All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.